I wanted to talk about something today that's also very neatly planned. Very neatly planned. The Jewish calendar is very, very neatly planned. The first day of every Jewish month in the Jewish calendar corresponds to a phase of the moon. Did you know that? The first day of every Jewish month corresponds to a new moon. Now, you might be wondering, okay, why are we talking about this today? In our study in the Gospel of Mark today, at the end of Mark chapter 15, we, stu- we find ourselves not at the start of a Jewish month, a new moon, but in the middle of a Jewish month, a full moon. And go ahead and bring up that next slide here. In our story today in Mark, we find ourselves at the time of the Jewish Passover. We're going to find ourselves on the 15th day of Nisan. And on the 15th day of Nisan, it is always a full moon. Always. The the calendar is structured. It's neatly planned around the moon phases. And so, this year's Passover, which happens to fall on Thursday, April the 9th, for the uh, for Jewish uh, persons, if you look up at the sky on April the 9th, you're going to see a full moon. Every time Jewish Passover falls on a full moon. The calendar is neatly planned around the phases of the moon. Now, why do I bother talking about this? Why do we come up with these strange and odd facts about uh, moon phases and Jewish calendars. Take a look at Mark chapter 15, verse 33. Mark chapter 15, verse 33, and it's going to be up on your screen behind you, says this, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We're going through our Gospel of Mark. Coming to the very end, we've only got a few studies left. In, in this entire study in Mark. And in Mark 15:33, the day that Jesus died, it says, when the sixth hour had come, that is noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. Now, this is a, a very peculiar statement. Um, Historians, uh, well, let's backtrack a moment here. Jesus was crucified during the time of Passover, when the moon was at its full phase. Mark and the other Gospel writers indicate that the sun was darkened on the day that Jesus died. Yet, the 15th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar is a time when the moon is always full. Okay, remember that? 15th of Nisan, always a full moon. Did you know, from a scientific perspective, it is scientifically impossible for there to be a solar eclipse on a full moon day, on a full moon night. Go ahead and bring that up. Solar eclipses are only possible with a new moon phase. What does that mean? That means that unless it was the first of Nisan or the first day of another Jewish month, it was scientifically impossible for there to be a solar eclipse on the day that Jesus died. Well, what does that tell us? 
What does this tell us? It tells us that something else was happening in the sky that day. It tells us that it was not a natural occurrence that day when Jesus died and the sun went dark for three hours. It tells us that God intervened in a supernatural, cosmic sense because it is scientifically impossible for a solar eclipse to occur on a full moon night. Now, some people say, well, maybe the Bible just talks about it. Maybe nobody else talks about that event, right? Wrong. In fact, there are a whole slew of ancient Greek and Roman historians who spoke about a day in and around the time of Jesus' death that had a peculiar sight in the sky. One such uh, historian, his name was Phlegon Trallianus, and he wrote in his History of the Olympics, he wrote this, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, approximately 32 to 33 A.D., a failure of the sun took place greater than any previously known, and night came on at the sixth hour of the day, so that stars actually appeared in the sky, and a great earthquake took place in Bithynia and overthrew the greater part of Nicaea. Now, these are parts of Asia Minor, which tell us that something happened in this day that caused this man, writing a history of the Olympics, to look up and say, this can't be. And he knew it couldn't be. Because they were skilled and trained in the art of astronomy. And even in the time of Jesus' day, they knew it was scientifically impossible for there to be a solar eclipse. In fact, Thallus, the guy at the bottom there, bottom left, Thallus, he was a historian who didn't have that astronomical perspective. He didn't know that it was impossible for there to be a solar eclipse that day. And he wrote in his records, yeah, there was a solar eclipse. This peculiar day, right around the time of Christ's death. He thought it was kind of odd. But then the next man, Julius Africanus, rebuked Thallus. He said, no. He wrote in his records, he says, no, you're wrong. It couldn't have been a solar eclipse. I know astronomy. And so you see historians going back and forth over this peculiar event in and around the time that Jesus died. Something crazy happened. In and around the time of A.D. 30 to 33 approximately, historians kind of go back and forth on some of the dates there. And we know unequivocally that it was not a natural occurrence. Because no possible way could a solar eclipse happen on a full moon night. Should we be surprised by this occurrence? I say no way. I say the Bible speaks so many times, time and time again, of cosmic events that are unnatural, that are God-caused, that signify a great and mighty day of the Lord. And if there was ever such a day, this was that day. If there was ever such a day, this was that day. Take a look as we continue on in our study. Look at verse 33 and we'll continue to 30. It says, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sixth hour again we mentioned was about noon. The darkness here, the darkness in the land, a, a scene of apocalyptic imagery. It was uh, very apropos for this moment in time when Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, was dying for the sins of all mankind. 
And Jesus, as He's dying on the cross, cries out in His native tongue, in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Mark translates the words. Did you notice that? Notice what it says in verse 34. It's, it's, it's a minor word, but it's important. He, he, he quotes Jesus' words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and then He says, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that tells us? That tells us that the people to whom Mark wrote didn't speak Aramaic. And it confirms yet again just that tiny little phrase, which is translated. That tiny little phrase confirms yet again that Mark was writing to a non-Jewish audience. He was writing to a Gentile audience, particularly the Christians in and around Rome. They didn't know Aramaic. They didn't know what Jesus said there. Had they read that and Mark didn't translate it, they would have been like, okay, let's, let's go find somebody who speaks Aramaic. No, but Mark gave it to him. He says, this is what it means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt absolutely abandoned by God in this moment. Have you ever felt abandoned? Have you ever felt alone? There was a story, uh, I, I, I heard this story, my grandfather used to speak of it, uh, I, um, and I found it online. There wasn't much history to it, but nevertheless, uh, it's kind of in bits and pieces, and I'm sure it's been embellished to some degree. But in World War II, there was a time when six of our American pilots went out to do some enemy surveillance. And they, they left the aircraft during World War II in the, in the South Pacific and they went off to survey the enemy. And in the time that they were gone at night, uh, the ship became in danger. And the captain of the ship ordered a blackout of the ship. He ordered that a blackout be uh, accomplished so that uh, enemy combatants, uh, particularly the, the Japanese fighters, could not find the ship. And so they went totally dark with their six American pilots out doing enemy surveillance. Well, the time came for, the enemy, for, for our American pilots to return back to the aircraft carrier. And as they did, they recognized that there was no lights on the ship. There was no lighting. And they, they started radioing saying, you know, where are you? I know you're in this area, but I can't see you. And the ship would radio back and say, we, we've gone dark. Uh, there's danger in the waters right now. And we've gone dark to protect, um, to protect the ship. And the pilots are starting to get low on fuel and they're frantically starting to radio again. You've got to just turn on one light force. We've got to see where you are. We've got to see where you are. And the ship's captain, he kept coming back and saying, I'm sorry, we've got to go dark. This is for the greater good right now. And sure enough, as they, as they ended, uh, as they went virtually to uh, empty, they radioed one last time and ultimately I, I, I was under the impression as the story goes that the captain of the ship at that time had to turn the radio off because they were so distraught because they knew that had they turned the lights on they would have been under severe enemy fire and they had to let those pilots crash into the ocean lost the planes they, to, uh, they told them in their last radio communication to eject and that they would go find them afterwards I was told as the story goes that every pilot was found but can you imagine can you imagine the sense of abandonment that those American pilots must have felt knowing that their own, their own soldiers, their own countrymen 
for the greater good for that moment in time had to abandon them to protect what was right and what was good. To protect their interests in the South Pacific. They had to let go of their men temporarily. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. God, in that moment, to protect the greater good, He knew what was, what was right and what was, what was the merciful thing to do. He wanted us to be redeemed through the death of His Son. And He said, for the greater good, I'm going to abandon My Son temporarily. I'm going to let Him go. He's crying for help. And I'm not going to pick up that radio call right now. Because my son has already told me, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Jesus was forsaken for the greater good. He was forsaken for the greater good. Verse 35. Then some of those who stood by when they heard that, that Jesus was speaking, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. Saying, uh, excuse me, let me read, read verse 36 again. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered, to, offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Okay, now we see something peculiar happening here. The, the, the crowd, most likely Jewish crowd because they would have understood Aramaic, whereas the Romans might not have. The Jewish crowd watching Jesus die, they hear, they hear something coming out of His mouth. Okay, They hear the Elo, Elo, Elama Sabachthani. And on the cross, at an elevated angle, under severe uh, conditions, health conditions, understandably Jesus' speech was probably slurred. It was probably uh, not as, as, as intelligible as it could have been. And so when Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, what some of the Jews may have heard is Elias, Elias, which was the name for Elijah. Elias, Elias, Eloi, Eloi. And so they thought just for that moment, perhaps he's calling out to Elijah. And this was actually a very common thing for them to think about. Because in the time of Jesus' day, it was a very, uh, there was a very popular common belief among the Jews that Elijah would actually come in times of need to protect the innocent and rescue the righteous. They actually believed that. They believed that Elijah would return at times, convenient or particular times in which someone who was being persecuted or unjustly harassed could be delivered. And there were, there were actually Jewish, there were Jewish apocryphal writings which speak of many fables in which Elijah returns in a disguise to rescue someone. Perhaps that's what they thought, that Jesus was crying out for this rescue from a great prophet of Israel. So a, a Jewish man fills a sponge, he, perhaps in an effort to uh, sustain Jesus long enough so that Elijah can rescue him. He fills the sponge with sour wine and puts it on a reed and hands it to him. And sometimes we get the impression that this was a, maybe, a, maybe the sour wine. We look at that and we think well, maybe that was a, a bad drink. Maybe that was kind of a mocking drink. In, in, la, in the last study we noticed 
wine mixed with myrrh, and that was a mocking gesture. But this one, in fact, is probably not a mocking gesture. In fact, sour wine was a common drink of the peasants and of soldiers. Uh, we might liken it to uh, like a lemonade today. It was kind of that bitter taste, but it was refreshing. And so this sour wine gesture was actually probably an act of, of somewhat of compassion. Probably an act of compassion, not an act of, of mockery. But we can't be sure. Verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and He breathed His last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite Him saw that He cried out like this and breathed His last, He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. This is, um, this is not common for someone dying of crucifixion. In, the, in that final moment, uh, the, the final moments of crucifixion are more of a, a listless, gradually, slowly deteriorating kind of death where the person just kind of lists away. But Jesus appears to die somewhat of His own accord. He seems to give up His life, which is in keeping with the Scriptures. He cries out with a loud voice and He breathes His last. Mark says, when that happened, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There were a few veils in the temple in, uh, in that day. There was an outer veil uh, that everyone could see as they began to walk toward the temple precincts, a very large outer veil. Uh, there was possibly a second inner veil and then a final, a final veil which covered the Holy of Holies, the very place where the presence of God was to exist. And the Jews had positioned the veil in front of the Holy of Holies, in front of the most holy place in the temple uh, as a sign of respect, as a, as, a, as a gesture that this behind this veil is where God's presence resides. Now what does it mean that the, that the veil was torn in two? And was it that veil or the outer veil? Mark doesn't say. In fact, none of the Gospel writers say. However, the author of Hebrews seems to indicate that it was the inner veil, the Holy of Holies veil. And if you read the author of he uh, the, the, the book of Hebrews, and particularly in chapter 10, right around verse 20, you'll notice that the tearing of the veil, the, the rending of the veil, was a symbolic was symbolic of the unleashing of God's presence in and outside of the Jerusalem temple. As the veil was torn, according to the author of Hebrews, God's presence was unleashed throughout Palestine and into even Gentile territories. A new and fresh kingdom of God was present because of the death of Jesus Christ. And it's not without a bit of irony that the very next verse talks about a Gentile. Mark's giving us a clue here. He's saying the veil was rent. And oh, by the way, a Gentile then confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. A Gentile, a Roman soldier no less, a centurion confessed 
that Jesus Christ was the Son of God as the result of Jesus' final cry and the rending of the temple veil. The kingdom of God is here and it's new and fresh. Jesus' death has opened the door for salvation. The, the centurion's comment is, uh, is really, really significant, I think. Uh, we, we can pass over it real quickly. But I think it's very significant. He says, truly this man, this man. The last time the, the phrase this man was used was used by Peter. And he says, I do not know this man. Peter cursed and swore and, and the, the, the girl was accusing him, you know this Jesus, you know this Jesus. And Peter, Jesus' closest disciple, one of his closest disciples, turned to the girl and says, I don't even know this man. And later on, hours later, a Roman soldier says, this man was the Son of God. The idea of sonship, that Jesus was the Son of God, is a significant phrase throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's happened at least a couple times before. I want to point out two. In Mark 1.11, when Jesus was being baptized, God spoke from the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In Mark 9.7, at Jesus' transfiguration, God spoke from the heavens. He said, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. What is particularly notable about these confessions of Jesus' sonship with the Father is that they occur at a time of great cosmic events. In Mark 1, at Jesus' baptisms, what does it say? It says the heavens were parted and the Spirit of God descended like a dove upon Jesus. And the Father declared His Sonship. In Mark 9, at the transfiguration, what happened? Jesus, Peter, James, and John walked up on the mountain and all of a sudden Jesus' clothes went glistening white. And a a cloud enveloped them. And God spoke from the clouds, saying, this is My beloved Son. Hear Him. He affirmed Jesus' sonship with Him at a moment of great cosmic event. And here in Mark 15, a centurion, a Roman soldier, no less, in the midst of darkness, hearing the cries from the Jerusalem temple, precincts that the the veil had been torn, feeling an earthquake as the Gospel of Matthew speaks of at that time. The centurion looks at Jesus up on the cross as He breathes His last and says, truly this man was the Son of God. His sonship affirmed at a moment of great cosmic disturbance. The Kingdom of God is being unleashed in a fresh In a new way right here, friends. Fresh and new. Like never before. And it is only fitting. It is only fitting in keeping with that idea that the Kingdom of God is being unleashed in a new and fresh way. It is only fitting that the next verses talk about women. Talk about women being witnesses to Jesus Christ. Take a look at this for a moment. Look at verse 40 and 41. It says this, There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Lesson of Joseph and Salome, 
who also followed Jesus and ministered to Him when He was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with Him to Jerusalem. In keeping with the idea that the kingdom is being unleashed in a new and fresh way, Mark speaks of women being the eyewitnesses to Jesus' death and later on His resurrection. In that culture, in that day, that was a wild thing for Mark to do. Archie France writes this. He says, In a society which gave no legal status to the testimony of women, everything will nevertheless come to depend on their witness to what they have seen and heard. God is, is upending the world right here, friends. Gentiles are confessing Christ. Cosmic events are taking place. Women are being called upon to be the chief eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that culture, that was astounding. Astounding. God is elevating the lowly. He's elevating the weak. He's elevating the neglected. And He's saying, hey, the last shall be first. The weak shall be strong. I'm going to give the privilege of my son's death and resurrection not to my disciples, not to the 12 men who followed me all those years. I'm going to give it to the women who trailed behind them, who did the insignificant things behind the scenes, prepared a few meals, tended to some of their, some of their clothes. Jesus is honoring the weak and the lowly. And He's doing it in a spectacular way. Women are going to bear witness to the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus is truly dying for all. What about the list of, the, of these women? Mary Magdalene, uh, a woman healed of demon possession. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. This was possibly Jesus' mother. But actually, um, many scholars think it's, it's otherwise. It, it is true that... Uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, had sons named James and Joseph. However, those two names were extremely common in first century Palestine. And, and most scholars think that if, if that was really Mary, the mother of Christ, perhaps she would have been elevated to the first position in the text. But we, we can't know for sure. I tend to think it was probably her. Uh, but it could have also been the wife of, of Alphaeus, James the son of Alphaeus, one of Jesus' disciples. And then Salome. Uh, most likely the wife of Zebedee, of whom came James and John, Jesus' closest disciples. She was the one who had asked Jesus if her sons could sit on the right and left hand in Jesus' kingdom. Now, but their, really, their personal identity, friends, is not what's significant here. It's not. Their personal identity is not what's significant. What is significant is their gender. In Jesus' day, this was a wild concept that you would base the veracity of, of, the, of, this, of the faith, of this creed that Jesus died and rose again, that you would base it on the testimony of women. In that culture, that was unheard of. But Jesus upends cultures. He gives grace and mercy to all. And that's what, what is happening right here, right now. Verse 42. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, 
Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Um, at the start of this message, we considered um, some of the things surrounding the darkness and some of the extra-biblical evidence for it. Well, there's something really peculiar about this verse too. And, and it's a little rabbit trail, but hang in there. I think it's, I think it's going to be fascinating for most of you. The fact that Preparation Day is mentioned is so significant, friends. Preparation Day, it says that is the day before the Sabbath. So what day is that? What day is that? Friday, Right? It's Friday. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus died on a Friday. He died on a Friday, preparation day. You know, we always hear Good Friday, but you wonder, well, where, how do they know? How do they know this? They know this because of texts like this. Mark says plainly, hey, Jesus died on preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. We know this very clearly from the Gospel stories. But we also know something else. And this is not self-evident from the text, but this comes from a strong knowledge of Jewish culture in and around the time of Christ. We also know that Jesus died on Passover. See, now wait a minute. Jesus died on Passover. That's not possible. I know the story. I know the story, Neil. Jesus ate Passover on Thursday night. He ate Passover on Thursday night with his disciples, upper room and all that, right? Thursday night. In that evening, he was arrested and betrayed. And then on Friday morning, he went before Pilate and he died about 3 p.m., the ninth hour of the day. So how can you say he died on Passover? Passover was Thursday. Well, the reason we can say he died on Passover is because the Jews do not count a day as we do. In our culture... We think of a new day as beginning in the morning. We think of a new day starting when the sun comes up. But in Jesus' day, in the Jewish culture, a new day began not when the sun came up, but when the sun set. In the first century, a Jewish day was from sunset to sunset. It was not from sunrise to sundown. It was from sunset to sunset. Therefore, notice this last phrase here, Therefore, Jesus ate the Passover Thursday sundown and was crucified Friday afternoon on the same day, Friday, Nisan 15. You catch that? Jesus ate the Passover on Thursday evening, which was the beginning of Nisan 15 in the Jewish calendar. And through the night, He was betrayed, He was arrested, he came before Pilate. He ended up on the cross. And at 3 p.m. toward the end of Nisan 15, Jesus died. We can say two things unequivocally about Jesus. He died on a Friday and He died on Passover. He died on a Friday and He died on Passover. And here's what will really blow your mind. Can we look back? Do we have the ability to look back over, over the Jewish calendar to, de to determine when the 15th of Nisan fell on a Friday? Do we have that ability? Yes, we do, actually. There are two possible dates. Ready for them? Two options. Friday the 7th, 30 A.D., 
And Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, friends, you go back in history, these were the only two days in, G- in the time frame that Jesus would have approximately died that Passover fell on a Friday. These were the only days in human history that Passover would have fallen on a Friday. And so scholars, in large part due to guys like Harold Honer from Dallas Theological Seminary who recently passed away not even two months ago, a great professor, and a slew of others, Christian and non-Christian. This is not just an evangelical exercise. Uh, There are many, many unbelieving scholars who affirm, yeah, that's right, these are, these are potential dates here for the, conceivably the crucifixion of Christ. And so, uh, in large part, we're, de- we're indebted to people like Harold Honer and others, uh, scientists and, and astronomers who have been able to identify these two dates. And here, here's what's kind of wild, and I, I'm, I don't want to get too conspiracy theory here, but on Friday, uh, on Friday, April 3rd, when the sun went down and the moon came up, uh, 20% of the moon according to astronomers. Scientific fact is not, is not uh, Christianese. Scientifically, they can, they can demonstrably prove that when the moon rose on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, 20% of it was uh, blood red. It's a partial lunar eclipse. The book of Joel speaks of uh, the moon rising a little bit red on the day of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to say that that's the day. Some people will. <laughs> I'm going I'm to back up a little bit and say, you know what? Hey, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an astronomer. I'm reading what people are telling me, both Christian and non. And I think that's, and that's, that's some pretty good evidence here. I like that stuff. I take it with a grain of salt, though. I don't want to base my faith on this, and I don't want you to base your faith on this. But it is interesting that on Friday, April 3rd, when the moon rose that day, 20% of it was covered in red. No natural solar eclipse happened that day. That was impossible. But a natural lunar eclipse happened that day. Now let's not lose sight of things. Go back to verse 43. No more conspiracies. Joseph of Arimathea, that's who we need to talk about. Joseph of Arimathea, this guy, look, look what it says about him. A prominent council member. Well, what, what council? The Jewish council. That's the only council we've been talking about in the Gospel of Mark. There is no other council here. That means that that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. The same Sanhedrin council who just condemned Jesus to die. And now you see Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the Kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus Christ. Taking courage would be an understatement here. You know why? Because Pilate was excessively cruel. Because Jesus had been charged for insurrection, for treason, for being a king in place of Caesar. That's what he was charged with. And his fellow Sanhedrin council members had just condemned Jesus of blasphemy. And so when it says there that Joseph of Arimathea took some courage and went before Pilate, friends, this man went beyond boldness. He put his whole life on the line as he walked up to Pilate, bowing his head, just said, uh, can I have the body of Christ? 
Pilate's like, do you really want to be associated with an insurrectionist, a treason, a treasonous person? Do you really want the rest of your council to look upon you, the same men who condemned Jesus to die, and to think of you, why are you tending to His body? But that's what Joseph of Arimathea did. He was willing to stand up in the face of all odds, along with actually Nicodemus, another council member, as John 19 indicates. Nicodemus helped prepare the body with Joseph of Arimathea. Two Sanhedrin council members, perhaps more, but at least two, dissented to Jesus' condemnation and death. At least two of them dissented. And the council overruled them. Are you willing to stand up to superiors and to co-workers for what is right? Are you willing to follow in Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus's example, their footsteps? I do think it's peculiar, and we'll just throw it out there, uh, that Jesus' family or His disciples did not bury Him. Friends, that's significant. In Jewish culture, it was very typical for the family first, and if not the family, then the disciples. Remember John the Baptist when he died back in Mark 6? Who buried him? His disciples. John the Baptist was buried by his disciples. Jesus, at his moment of greatest trial, was abandoned by his closest disciples. And said it was only the women in that culture, the, the neglected ones, who stood by him, who watched and waited and would soon go to the tomb to finish the preparations for the body. You know, when you believe in Christ, friends, you get a new family, I think. You know, We talk about that a lot here in this church. But it's true. Um, sometimes, you're, you know, sometimes your biological family is very, very close. And sometimes it's not. You know, People have different family relationships. But when you become a Christian, when you're a believer in Christ, you get a new family. And sometimes, oftentimes, that family uh, cares for you and, and tends to your needs just as much, if not more so, than your own biological family. I was, I was uh, thrilled to see the outpouring of support uh, for James and Mandy this last week. And I saw James here. Where are you, James? There are you. How are you doing? All right. Glad to have your wife home. All right. James and Manny, I mean, they've got family, but the family's out of town. The you know, family's back in Texas. And, and, and many of you stepped up to, to give them meals, to, bring ch- to do some child care, to visit them in the hospital. Um, you know, we were their family in their time of need. And, and when you believe in Christ, you get a new family. And that's what happened with Jesus. He was a, a man who, who, who saw others who had believed in Him come to His aid in His time of greatest need. And and to prepare his body for burial. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, unlikely candidates to do so, and yet they, they reached out to, to tend for Jesus' body. Let's close with these final verses here. 44 to the end. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. He, he, was, he was astonished that Jesus was already dead when Joseph of Arimathea came to him. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And then Joseph bought fine linen, took Jesus down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled 
a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed uh, where he was laid. Pilate was astonished. Uh, It was not uh, likely that Jesus would have died so quickly. So he was, he was surprised, which again, maybe an indication that Jesus, he, he gave up his life. He didn't just listlessly expire on the cross. He gave it up. Pilate asked the centurion to confirm this. Probably the same centurion who made the confession. The centurion agreed. He, he had in fact expired. And they gave the body to Joseph, who prepared it and who put it in a tomb uh, carved out of rock, a rich man's tomb, which is spoken of in the scriptures. And uh, again, Joseph of Arimathea is putting his life on the line here. He's, he's giving up his family tomb, perhaps, to Jesus. In the face of Romans who had charged Jesus with insurrection, in the face of his own council members who had charged Jesus of blasphemy, Joseph of Arimathea didn't care. He gave Jesus a proper and a, a, really a, a, a well-to-do burial. Um, I didn't mention my title at the start of the message because I wanted to mention it at, at the end here. What we've seen here, friends, are snapshots. What we've seen in the, at the end of Mark 15 are significant snapshots of the death of Jesus Christ. We've seen little bits here and there. Little bits and pieces of people and circumstances that surrounded the death of Christ. Mark is very quick, rapid fire. This happened, this happened, this happened. The other Gospel writers, they kind of they draw it out more. But Mark is quick. And I think what he means to say is, hey, Jesus, He died for so many people. He died for pagan Roman soldiers. A centurion, He died for them. He died for women who were often neglected in this culture, but He died for them, the ignored ones, the marginalized ones. He died for people who stand alone, persecuted and harassed, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He died for them as they stood up against all odds and said, we want to care for the body. They could, their lives were on the line as they made that statement to, to Pilate and as they went back to their council members who had known that they had cared for the body. He died for lonely people who look upon Jesus on the cross and hear Him cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And they think, yeah, I've felt abandoned before. I've felt forsaken before. He died for history buffs who like to figure out when the exact date of the crucifixion was. That was kind of funny. supposed to be... He died for astronomers who like to look up at the sky and and see cosmic events and wonder, is this the day of the Lord? Is this the day of the Lord? He died for all those people. Snapshots. Rapid fire. Mark is saying Jesus lived and died and we're going to see on Easter Sunday He rose again for everybody. He died for you. He died for me. He died for all. He died for you. He died for me. He died for all. Why did he do it? You know, having uh, having just had a baby, I feel like I, I know I know with confidence why he did it. I really do. I don't think it's a mystery why Christ died for us. 
Having just had a baby, I know that He died for me because He loves me. He loves me. He loves me so much because I'm His creation. He made me. We're His handiwork. He made you. When you make something, you you die for those things. When you make a baby, no matter what the baby does later in life, no matter how much she disappoints you, no matter how much he goes astray, it, it just doesn't matter to a parent. It just doesn't matter to a parent. Yeah, it grieves them and it hurts them when they go off in the wrong path, but a parent doesn't think twice about dying for his or her child. A parent doesn't think twice about it. It's instinctual. We do anything for what we make. Jesus made us. And yeah, He's grieved by our sin. There's no question. God is troubled. And as a just God, He requires a penalty for our sin. But He loves us. And His love trumps all. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why He died for pagan Roman soldiers, for women, for people who stand alone for righteousness, for lonely people, for historians and astronomers, for pastors and parishioners. He died for all because He loves what He made. If you've never believed in Christ, I urge you to do this this day. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God. And He has told us in His Word that if you believe in Him, you will be with God forever. Believe in Christ and you will live forever with God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your love that is expressed to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. By His wounds, we have been healed and Lord, we know, why, we know why You did this. It's because You love us. It's because You made us. And You care about all of us, from the insignificant ones to the greatest, from the neglected ones to the honored, from the marginalized to the esteemed. You care for every one of us. You died for all of us. I pray, Lord, that no one would leave this day, not having come to a saving knowledge of Your Son. We look forward to being with You forever in the Kingdom of God through faith in Jesus our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.